Hi, welcome to the Spiritually Minded Mom podcast, where every mom can find hope, joy, and God's hand in motherhood. You'll hear interviews with all kinds of moms who are learning how to navigate motherhood. Most of all, you'll learn that you have a partner in motherhood, a loving Heavenly Father who wants you to succeed and is always there to help you in your most important work as a mother. And now, here's your host, my mom, Dara Trendler. Welcome to the Spiritually Minded Mom podcast. This is Darla, and I am so excited to welcome my guest today. Yes, I have two guests for you today, and they are Richard and Linda Iyer, who probably don't need much of an introduction. But the Iyers have been married for almost 50 years, and they have raised nine children. They are also the authors of many books, and they speak around the world to a very, very diverse groups about families and parenting, as well as balancing work and family with personal needs. So Richard and Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. We're delighted, darling. We're glad to do this as a couple. We're going to be talking mainly about my book today, but people who know us know that even when we have a book that's authored by one of us, it's really by both of us. <laughs> no, Richard's my teacher. I'm just here to see today. <laughs> well, I think that you're a dy- dynamic duo. The two of you together is just great. And this is this is a first for me. I've never interviewed two people at once, and I've Richard, you get the distinction of being the first man on the podcast. Wow, I'm like like a thorn among roses here. (laughs) So I've read read several of your books. Um, How to Talk to Children About Sex was invaluable to me and helped me so much to navigate that with my kids, that conversation. And my husband and I have a goal that we are not raising good kids, but we're raising kids who become great adults. And so I really loved the entitlement trap. That was, that was a, another favorite of mine. And wow. then um, I know Richard, you have a new book out and I recently read it, The Happiness Paradox. And we're going to talk more about that in the interview. But to start off, I have kind of a personal question because this is the stage of life that I'm in and where I'm at. I, I really want to know, I'm, I have my first kids out of the house at college and I'm just launching kids now for the next few years out of the home. And I read your daughter's blogs and I follow you and I see that your family is really close and you have, so you have nine kids, they're all adults and married and having their own families. So I would love to know, how do you keep that large family close and connected? And were there things you did when they were young to do that? You know, how, how does that work for you guys? Well, let let me, that's a great opening question, Darla. And let me preface it by saying that, uh, you know, we, we're a little uncomfortable in being thought of as family experts because nobody has the same family as anyone else. And we, we're always concerned to people, look, you're going to find your own way and your own formula, but if we can learn from each other's ideas, that's just great. So don't any of you listeners get the idea that we have some perfect family, but I will say we work really, really hard at it. And it is our top priority, and I think that's the first thing. I think usually, Linda, I wouldn't you say that families we know who prioritize their family and their communication, um, their 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 families aren't perfect, but boy, they're a long way ahead of the ones where the priority has slipped a little bit. You know, I think probably one of our our best things is that we just had some time with them, and boy, it's hard to find time when you have a bunch of kids. At home, but we had a lot of great times together, and we had uh, times when we really felt each other's spirits. Even though we always say we have nine children, one of every kind, because they are <laughs> all different. 
but um, we had the sweetest uh, sometime in conference, uh, you know, a lot of years ago, we, somebody told us to have a family testimony meeting. And so we started having family testimony meetings every, every fast Sunday with our kids. And Just with our kids, a family testimony meeting. And we, we did it from the time they were very young. And even though they're all gone now, Darla, we feel like that, that those early testimony meetings where feelings were really shared, deep feelings, were a foundation for, for all of us staying together. And then let me just quickly add, you know, our kids live all over the world. We've got two in Europe. We've got one in Hawaii. We've got one in Manhattan. We've got them all spread across the world, mainly because we traveled so much with them that we're probably paying the price for that now. But isn't technology a grand key? I mean, we do Marco Polo. We do all kinds of WhatsApps. We, we're back and forth electronically all the time. And, and we hardly ever make a regular call. It's always a FaceTime call. And so I'm just grateful that we, even though we live thousands of miles from each other, we're together literally talking and seeing each other every day. I think really that's the main thing. We we have Marco Polo. You mentioned that every day somebody calls from the last week was Romania and Vietnam and Korea and Hawaii. And then somebody said, well, I'm in a really exciting place, my bedroom. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it really is fun to hear from from everybody. There, it has developed a camaraderie through the years. And so well, we feel like we're talking to tour to our peers now. Uh, we're actually doing this last book that we're doing right now with the daughter. And we've done other books with kids, too. It's just so fun. And remember family reunions. I mean, that's an institution in the church. And the better you can make them and the, as frequently as you can have them, that keeps together. But to end off a long answer to your first question, Darla, you know, you make it a goal. You make it a, a conscious, deliberate goal to remain close to your children all the time, no matter where they are. I love that. And one of the words I kept thinking when you guys, when you were both speaking about that is the word intention, like you were intentional right? when they were still in your home, you're intentional now with, with staying connected, having that communication, the time. I love the idea of a family testimony meeting that, that is fantastic because the spiritual things really bind us together when we can share those spiritual things with each other. They're the ones that last, and you're right. Yeah. Intentional, deliberate, on purpose. These are all key words to building a family. Yeah, that is so good. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's been on my mind, and I always want to pick everyone's brain about that. And so that is fantastic. I love hearing your insights on that. I'm going to go implement some of those things. <laughs> so let I want to talk about, Richard, I want to talk about your book, The Happiness Paradox. And in the book, you quoted a scripture that we've all heard probably Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. So a lot of times we talk about happiness and we talk about joy. Is there a difference between those two things? And if so, what is that difference? Well, it really is. And let me introduce the, the book and, and then answer that question. Um, it's interesting when we, when I started writing the happiness paradox, I thought it was going to be a break from writing parenting books, which is what we usually do. But mm -hmm. Interesting thing, Darla. It turns out that in a way, this is a parenting book because we're suggesting some changes in attitude that, that we think make people happier. But we've discovered that they're the very changes that also make people into better parents. And I'll, 
I'll explain that in a minute. But on but on your question, joy is, I think, a far more powerful word than happiness because there's a wonderful anonymous poem we like to quote, and I think I put it in the book. Happiness is a thing of here and now, the bright leaf in the hand, the, mor the morning sun, the fight accomplished, or the summit won. When things go well, happiness may start. Joy is secret smiling of the heart. And, and I think that's the real key, that, that joy is a comprehensive word that encompasses the plan of happiness and mortality. I wish we'd call it in the church the plan of joy rather than the plan of happiness, frankly, mm -hmm. because joy, it involves sorrow as well as pleasure. It involves hard times as well as good times because they all knit together into this marvelous plan of salvation. And the ultimate end and goal of that, as Nephi says, is joy. So you wrote this book and you kind of gave us a little premise of it. What, what prompted you to write the book? What, what did you see as a need for this book in the world? Well, I'll, I'll be very candid and personal about that. Uh, with all of our children and with all of our children's friends, our life has been really wrapped up around watching this younger generation and, and particularly millennials now. And I think that most people, particularly younger people and particularly aggressive type A people, are making themselves unhappy by pursuing things they think will make them happy. And it was that paradox, it was that dichotomy that really got me thinking about writing this book. If you if you go in a self-help section of a bookstore, darling, I know you're a self-help person. What's interesting is how many of those books take aim at, at three things. Control, getting more control, being able to have more control. Two, ownership, wanting more, having more, getting more. And three, independence, not needing anyone else, standing on my own and so on. And, and over the years, the more I've thought about that, the more I, I really sincerely believe those are three attitudes or three paradigms, if you will, that really rob us of happiness. I call them in the book, The Joy Thieves. They, they steal away happiness. And not only that, they're, they're basically false concepts. And we know that in the church and most thinking people really know that, you know, let's take them one at a time. Control. What do you really control? Let's... Let's be honest here. You, you can try to control yourself, but when people try to control other people or control even the, how things are going to go in a particular day, there's nothing but frustration because things always go differently than we planned. And we really have very, very little control. And wanting more of it becomes very frustrating. And then the second one, ownership. Think about that. What do we really own, you know? We, we have this wonderful feeling in the church that God owns everything, and we're just here, we're taking care of it. We're given callings, or we're given stewardships, and so on, but we don't really own it. And the, the idea of ownership creates jealousy and competition, and a certain amount of condescension to people that have less than you do, and envy of people that have more than you do, and so on. It's just, a, it's just an unhappy paradigm. And then the third one is probably the most blatant lie of all, independence. Come on. We're, we're all totally interdependent. 
and we're all dependent on God. So to, to strive for independence, number one, it's impossible, and number two, it's, it leads us in a direction that ends up in loneliness. And so the whole idea of this book was to say, okay, if, if those are the wrong approaches to life, control, ownership, and independence, it's not enough to just tell people, stop looking for those things. They're wrong. They're false. They're going to make you unhappy. Stop. That's a very negative approach. And I felt like to, to do a good book, I had to create three alternative attitudes that could be substituted for those three unhappy attitudes. And it was that pursuit, in other words, the pursuit of the three joy rescuers to replace the three joy thieves, that became very fascinating to me. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be candid on this, and Linda will back me up. This is a book, some, some books you start in and you write them and you finish them in a few months or in a year. This is a book in terms of that kind of thinking and trying to find those three alternatives that I've been working on for 30 years. Oh, my goodness. You know, I, I sometimes say about Richard, he just leans his head over and a book falls out. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work that way this time because he has been working on this for a long time. And, and, and which is to my advantage because we've talked about it so much that we feel like it's really helped us not only individually but as a couple. Right. And that's the reason also, Darla, this again is a long answer to your question, but uh, that's the reason we made it a flip book. That's the reason it has two covers. I mean, uh, I did a book long, long ago called I Challenge You, I Promise You that you had to flip it over. And it was a bestseller. And I loved working on that book. And I'd always wanted to do another one. And on this one, I realized this one had to be that way because it's, it's, asking you to flip your whole life over. It's asking you to get rid of and discard the three things you've been seeking all your life, control, ownership, and independence. And so you have to turn the book over, read it from the other side. And now instead of being called the, the happiness paradox, it's called the happiness paradigm. Paradigm meaning a framework or a way to look at things that is really accurate. And now you read about the three alternative attitudes, which <laughs> if you're reading the book, you're not supposed to skip ahead and, and, <laughs> know, and know these three alternatives. But for your special listeners, Darla, we're going to give a <laughs> preview of the three joy rescuers. <laughs> okay, before you reveal those, let's talk about the deceivers first. Because oh, I read, of course, because I'm a podcaster and I talk about motherhood. I read this book with motherhood in mind, and those those three deceivers are so prevalent in motherhood. And right, because control, like as moms, it's such a trap that we want to be in control of our kids. You know, we want we tie our worth to how well our kids do, and it's it's totally we can't do that because kids have agency, right? So if you're tying it all to controlling your kids, you're you're not going to be happy. You're you're not going to find that. You got it. That's exactly right. Right. And, and ownership. I mean, whose kids are we raising, right? We're not raising our real, they're not really ours. They're God's children. You know, and that one, that seems obvious to, to us in the church, but believe me, speaking is, is in the secular world. And, and most parents literally think they own their kids. They think, look, I made them, they're mine. And that's a fatal attitude. Oh my gosh. Because 
for one thing, they don't respect their children. They think, hey, I made them, you know, I, I can do whatever I want with them. And the paradigm of saying, no, 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 they're God's children, that makes an enormous difference in parenting. Yeah, that that is a huge shift from what the world is telling us for sure. But we know we know that's true. We know where these spirits came from and where they're going after this. And we're just here to nurture and guide them. But they're God's children, right. and which is which is very comforting to me because if they're His children, then He wants to help us. And you know yeah. that's what I talk about all the time on the podcast that right. He's there to guide us. And then of course we have independence. Like how can we be independent from God? That leads right into that. You know we have to have we have to have Him. Well, and think how interdependent we are, especially in the church, on on teachers and on on priesthood leaders and on youth leaders and on primary leaders and, and on each other. I mean, you know, I don't like the old, it's a little hackneyed, the old phrase, it takes a village, but it, but it takes a church, it takes a community, it takes all this interdependency, and it also, of course, takes god because um we're all dependent on him so you're right i in the book i give all kinds of examples of how those three things don't work but the most powerful examples in every case in all three of the deceivers is how badly those attitudes work in family that leads me to another question that is kind of it's interesting and linda maybe you can talk to this so in so we know that in your book the entitlement trap you talked about teaching our kids some of these things like control and you know we want to teach our kids self-control yeah. so so how does that how does that work we we kind of need to teach our kids some of these things but you know how do we flip that and help them find the happiness and the joy that they need in their life but you talk in the book about how we kind of first sometimes we have to experience these things first and our kids have to experience them, but then we flip it. So how do we make that work? You know, I think we can give our kids guidelines and that's what the entitlement trap is about. Giving them, for example, an economy in your family where this is what you have to do in order to get what you want and so on. And so you have control over, you know, the, the system and so on, but the kids still have their free agency. They can do it or they don't. As we found so well with all the different variety of children, you right. know, some are just um, savers. They save every single penny and others just cannot get out soon enough to spend what they earned, you know? So it, it, it is a matter of them deciding whether or not they're going to accept the controls that we put in. And that's okay. That's the way we learn. You know, Darla, you're, you're a very, um, believe it or not, I do interviews with some people who I can tell one minute in the interview that they haven't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I would not do that. <laughs> I can tell by your questions that you not only read the book, but you really understand it because that you're right. I mean, we call control, ownership, and independence the three deceivers, but then I back off a little and say, but another way to think of them is that they're the precursors to better attitudes. And, and, and essentially, growing up, ideally, is a situation where we go through a phase as children where we should learn a certain kind of control, a certain kind of independence, obviously, and a certain kind of ownership, taking responsibility. I own this. It's my toy. I'm going to put it away. This is my shirt. I'm going to hang it up, and so on. So on an elementary level for children, control, ownership, and independence are very important lessons. The problem is when we never get over those attitudes and we grow into adulthood, 
still thinking that those are the goals. We never reach a higher plane. We never reach a spiritual level where we understand that those are just training ideas. They're not eternal truths. They are things that we have to get past if we're going to become truly spiritual people who understand our relationship to God. That reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my teenagers this week about change. Like we're talking about, you know, he thinks it's totally fine that he can just stay the way he is. And, you know, I'm trying to to tell him, let's get to a higher level. Let's change. Let's, you know, do something different. So how do we change? How do, let's talk about the, you, you called them the rescuers, right? right? What are they and how do we get there? How do we, how do we get the deceivers out of our life and get to these rescuers to find joy? The key transition in the book is the, is the, the notion that you don't get rid of a, of a faulty or bad attitude just by trying to shun it. You have to find a replacement for it. And so the, the larger part of the book is these replacements. And let me, let me cover them real briefly, and then you can dig deeper into the ones you want. So we think that the alternative attitude to control is this wonderful word, word called serendipity. Now, that's a word that's been a little bit um, trivialized by the secular world. There's a movie called Serendipity, and it essentially has come in the world to mean luck or fate. You know, these things that just happened to me. But the actual meaning of serendipity is a state of mind whereby through your own awareness and your own sensitivity, you frequently find something better than that which you were seeking. In other words, you still have goals. You still get up and try to have as much control over your day as you can, but you do it with an attitude of serendipity, which basically means there are going to be a lot of surprises. There are going to be a lot of things I did not anticipate. And and many of them are going to come from my children. Children always surprise you. There's a teaching moment. I didn't have on my planner 1230 have a teaching moment with Jimmy. You know, Jimmy just came up with a good question. And so if you're a serendipity person, you recognize that question that Jimmy just asked you is more important than the thing you had on your list to do right then. And so instead of thinking of those things as interruptions, you think of them as opportunities. In fact, you know, I think this is one of the most fun things we've had to deal with since we started thinking about serendipity because it's a whole attitude change. Now, speaking of change, changing your teenager, we have to change our minds too. I mean, when all our kids were home, there were so many lessons, so much stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, life is not supposed to be lived like this. How am I going to make it through this day? And when I changed my mind and realized, you know, I really don't have a lot of control. I'm just going to go with this. I'm going to go with the flow and whatever happens, happen. And, and instead you think, oh, I wonder what's going to happen to me today. You know, because you never know what's going to happen. When yeah go through a, a day and and instead of like oh no that's not on my schedule i mean embrace it and just say yes this is really fantastic i think it's often with people that you, that you do yeah that. it is and, and darla sure. you i know on your podcast you 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 talk frequently about personal revelation and and the beauty of a serendipitous attitude the the adjective form of serendipity is serendipitous and the beauty of that attitude is it really opens you to personal revelation. If you're hell-bent, excuse the French, on, on checking off your list every day, you've pretty much closed the door to God. I mean, 
you know, you're, you're so intent on your agenda, you're not interested in his. But if you adopt this more serendipity attitude where you still are proactive, you're still trying to do what you think is right and get things done and so on, but you're wide open to surprise, to opportunity, to unexpected things, and to guidance and to promptings and to warnings and to little flashes of inspiration, that starts making life exciting. It makes it more adventurous and it makes it far, far better. So I said I'd be brief on these. I'll be briefer on the other two <laughs> and dig into them. The alternative attitude to ownership is a pretty obvious one for people in the church. It's stewardship. You know, that, that's all the difference in the world. If you think of that as a tree, the tree of ownership is growing branches of greed and envy and jealousy and condescension and comparing and competing. The tree of stewardship is growing limbs of humility and of and of respect for other people and of trying to take good care of something you know is not your own, like a calling, but also like a child, also like a friendship, also like a, a career. And it just flips your whole world around when you think stewardship instead of ownership. And the third one, we had to manufacture a, a word, Darla, because I was... I love I, this word. <laughs> I was intent on having all three of the alternatives be S words that had 11 letters. <laughs> Stewardship and serendipity, wonderful. Two 11-letter S words. Now, what in the world? I knew what I wanted the alternative attitude for independence to be. I wanted it to be interdependence and dependence. How could I create a word? And without getting into too much detail, I wanted the word to involve synergy which means, you know, we're greater than the sum of our parts. We work together. We don't work separately. We team up, especially in our marriages and so on. And, but that was a wonderful S word, but didn't have enough letters. But I also wanted, I wanted the element of Carl Jung's word, which is a beautiful, interesting word, synchronicity, which sort of means everything is related. Everything connects in the world. So I combined those two words, synergy and synchronicity, into the new word, which you will never find in any other book but this one, synchro, excuse me, synergicity, synergicity, bingo, S word with 11 letters, and it is the perfect alternative to independence because it means forget independence. You want synergy and you want synchronicity and you want things to work together not separate. I, I love all of those. Like, so let me, let me go back and just talk about a couple of things that I think our listeners might be interested with all three of those things. So with serendipity, I pulled out this quote from your book. It says, the spirit is this, and meaning the spirit of God, the spirit is the source of the serendipity of our spirit. We talk about being fun and spontaneous and all of those things, but it's following the spirit in our daily lives, right? Exactly right. That's our goal. That should be all of our goal. Yeah, taking out, you know, when you're having this to-do list, and, and I have been so guilty of this, this I'm a recovering to-do list addict, like, you know, just having to check everything off on the box. And my my kids started praying, bless mom that she can get all her, you know, her to-do oh, list done. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, what am I teaching my kids? So I got to step back from this. I tell mom that if you do something that's not on your list, you write it down so you can check it out. <laughs> that, that's me. 
I totally get that. But darling, but understand that you still, in a serendipity attitude, you still, it's fine to make a list. Right. Just that you now view the list as just sort of a tentative idea of what you think you might be able to do, but you actually don't define your perfect day as checking it all off. In fact, that you define that as a boring day. Like, wow, I didn't get any inspiration. I didn't have any uh, spontaneity. I just sort of did my list. That's horrible. What you want is a day where you do what you can on your list, but you find better things than what's on your list all day long. Yes, I love that. And that does that is what brings us joy in life, right? When we're able to it helps us to serve others and to get outside of ourselves and to rely on God. I I love that. Well, and just look at the sunset. I mean, you know, you can't sunset at six thirty. You know, it just happens, and you have to just <gasps> look at that. You know. Yeah, that's amazing. I know the other day I was um, had this huge, like so much stuff going on, getting ready to go out of town and having to work and do all these things. And I was running some errands and I looked up and I saw the cross streets of the stoplight I was at. And I realized that someone I know well lives very close to those cross streets. And I just had the prompting, go see them. Awesome. And awesome. so I did. And actually, well, okay, I can't say that I did. I turned and I'm like, no, I don't have time for that. <laughs> And I got about a block and I turned around and I went and you know what? It was the best part of my day. And guess what? All the other stuff on my list got done. You know, awesome. it, it all worked out. And I think, I think that is a great way to, to think about our lives that we can be guided and, and we can have, you know, that leads to all the other things like the synergicity. I love that word. I love that you made it up. That's so great. You know, we, we talk a lot of, t a lot of times in our lives about, we oh, what a coincidence that this happened. And you, you know, you said in the book that, that there isn't such a thing as coincidence that, you know, it's just, if we're, if we're thinking it's a coincidence, we're not d noticing the divine in our lives. We're not noticing God. That's the key. And, and absolutely. In fact, we're thinking so much right now, because we're working on a new book called Receiving Family Revelation. And I cannot tell you how many times in the day things just fall on me when I'm thinking about that. It's just every speaker, every time I turn on the TV, everybody I talk to, because I'm thinking about that spirit just whacks me in the face with this. I can't believe how important that is to realize that, that God's with you all the time. Yes. You know, to show you how entrenched some of these other attitudes are. They, they even reflect themselves in the little cliches that probably all of our mothers taught us these things. Did, did your mother say to you, never put off till tomorrow that which you can do today? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I understand that's a wonderful sentiment to be active and so on. But I, I'll tell you a better, uh, what we substitute for, always put off, a put offable in favor of a now or never. It's these now or nevers that come up that we have to do now. And it's okay to put things off. In fact, selective procrastination is sort of an art form because it opens you up to the now, to the present, to the, to the revelation that you might be receiving right now. And by the way, another one I bet your mother said to you is, um, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Right. Right. And I like a different one that says some things are just barely worth doing, so just barely do them. In other words, it's okay to take a shortcut. It's okay if every corner in your house isn't cleaned with Lysol every day because you're choosing instead to do the serendipitous things with your child or to be connected in a 
in a synchronicitous way or to do, deal with your stewardship. They're, you see, they're spiritual terms, and the spiritual world works very, very differently than the physical world. Yeah, and I'm right. I know you said in your book too that we're, you know, we're having a, we're, I can't remember how it went exactly, but we're physical beings yeah. having a spiritual experience or something. What was that quote? <laughs> I can't remember exactly, but it's a Frenchman who originally said this, and and the original quote, which we changed in a lot of ways, and a lot of people use it, but the original quote is, "We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are." spiritual beings having a human experience there we go yes that is it that's what it's all about right that's what it's all about and and you know again the interesting thing about this happiness paradox book it's not a church book linda mentioned we're now writing about every 10 years we come back and write a deseret book (laughs) (laughs) and in between we write four or five uh, secular books because we've always felt our mission somewhat like our mentor and yours to some extent, Darla Stephen Covey. We've always mm-hmm. felt like our, our real calling was more of a, he called it a, a terrestrial calling of trying to teach truth to people without the fullness of the gospel. Um, but, and you know, like Linda said, we're now kind of excited because we're working on this new book called Receiving Family Revelation, which is entirely within the church. And within- I'm so excited for that cannot wait to read it but but back to the happiness paradox what we had to try to do there consciously and deliberately intentionally to use your word we were saying how do we teach the principle of spiritual attitudes in in sort of secular terms but the further we got into it the more we realized that in the context we're using them Serendipity, stewardship, and syner- and synergicity are very, very spiritual words because they pry us away from the world and pry us into, hopefully, the mind and will of God. Well, and we also realize that people are spiritual. I mean, statistics say 90% of people believe in God, at least in the USA. Uh, it has been fascinating for us to travel the world and go see people in different religions and Muslims and Sikhs and Buddhists and, um, and not religious and, you know, other Christian faiths and realize they have beautiful spirits. In fact, um, one they of have our, the light of Christ, even though they can't they name do. what it is. One of our daughters, her mission, her, her friend's mission president said, go out today and realize that four or five of the people you're going to talk to today are better than you are spiritually and in every way. I mean, they really are. So people um, really respond to things in the spirit, maybe not religion, but they, that they all have these beautiful spirits. And they respond to truth. Truth has a yes. ring to it. And people, again, that was the key to Stephen Covey's success is he, he, he told truth in secular words, but people recognized it when they saw it. Yeah, and that and that's the light of Christ, right? We all we all have that within us. We all are spiritual beings. Well, one of the things I kept thinking about when I was reading the second half of your book was one of my favorite quotes um, is by Elder Bednar. And I think of this quote often because I feel like in my life, where I'm at right now, I have a lot on my plate and, you know, a lot that I feel called to do wow. and really 
I really feel that I have to have a reliance on God or I can't do it. And so this quote is this, the enabling power of the atonement strengthens us to do and be good and to serve beyond our own individual desire and natural capacity. So I would love to know your perspective on how does the atonement tie in with these three rescuers or alternatives? Now that, that's a perfect question because that's, that's the difference between writing a secular book and a spiritual book. If right. this had been a Deseret book, that would have been the conclusion of the book. It would have been, how does all this dovetail and fit under the umbrella of the atonement? But since we're writing this book to and intentionally to, you know, Buddhists and, and Jews and uh, Sikhs and Hindus and so on, as well as Christians, we weren't able to say that. But I've had a lot of people tell me, Darla, who've read the book and, and sometimes kind of dramatically come up and say something like, you're just writing about Christ here, aren't you? You're just, you're just mm-hmm. not saying it. And I'm glad when people do that because that is the overarching um, thing of, of this whole theory is that, you know, control, ownership, and independence all imply that you're in charge. And they all imply that you, in and of yourself, have the power to succeed in life. Uh, the fact is, that those things are not true. The fact is that we are empowered by Christ. We are given life and light by Christ. And without him, it is impossible to get anywhere worthwhile, particularly in the eternities. And so we turn from control, ownership, and independence to serendipity, stewardship, and synergistic, what you're really doing is turning from the natural, the natural world to the spiritual world and acknowledging that your real goal is not your own agenda. Your real goal is his agenda and being worthy of the grace that he has already given to us through his atonement. Well, and the words, the enabling power mm-hmm. is... Magnificent yeah, isn't that powerful? I love that. It enables us to go forward, even when we make mistakes, but especially as we focus on the Savior, that enabling power to deal with life is just magnificent. Well, and it fills the gap. I like to think of it as a gap. You, you know, we believe in faith and works, right? We believe right. in grace and in works. And so the simple way to conceptualize that in your mind is you, you do your best. You go as far as you can. But you acknowledge that even with your best effort, there's a big gap. And it is the atonement that fills that gap and allows you to keep on going. And I do, I like that word too, the enabling power to bridge the gap. Yes, so good. And and that's what I thought about the whole time reading that second half of your book. That and yeah. you know, we talked before about how do we change? Well, we change through the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we can do it. We can't do it on our own. We can't have that independence from him. We have to have that. But again, it is, it is, you know, again, you use your word intentional. You don't make the shift by just saying a big long prayer and saying, yeah, please heavenly father, help me to get to where you want me to be. You, you need, you also need to have this proactive intentional thing where you say, I am going to think a different way. I am going to think in terms of serendipity and stewardship and synergicity because by doing that, I can then 
be ready for God to guide me and lead me. I've got to, I've got to make myself into a person that he can lead and he can guide. So good. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love talking to you. Like I could talk to you forever. This is so great. And I'm so grateful that you would come on my podcast to share these thoughts. I have one final question for both of you. And that is how have you seen and felt God as your partner in parenthood? Wow. I would, I'll let Richard have the last word on this, but I feel like every day, wow, what would we do without God? Amazing. And yet, you know, I see friends who are struggling with kids who are faltering in the church or have left the church and have so many issues in their lives that are that are so difficult and especially parents who have done everything every family community you know scripture study seminary everything everything that they possibly could and they think they deserve a kid but you know what i've learned is a fun little quote by a guy named sam brown called god is not a vending machine and i love that because you know you can't put in your thing and say, this is what I want and get what you expect. You might ask for Twizzlers and you might get a bag of peanuts. You know, you just never know what you're going to get. And I feel like that God is there for us no matter what our children do or, I mean, we're, we're our guides and so on. And that love is the, the empowering force that um, makes it all right no matter what. And I'll, I'll take it even maybe one step further, Darla, because I love your question. I mean, we are, you say we are partners with God in parenting. It's, it's, even, it's even more dramatic than that. We're basically the babysitters. You know, God is the true parent. Our heavenly parents are the true parents. We, we are the brothers and sisters of our children. You know, just through some wisdom of God, we came to earth 30 years or so before they did. They could be our parents had the, had the birth order been been reversed and i think thinking in that way it creates a kind of prayer that is you know i, I maybe i'm saying this too dramatically but it's the most direct prayer that can possibly be given is an earthly parent praying to a heavenly parent about the heavenly parent's children it's like I, you have given me this child, Father. I'm not sure why, but you've given him to me, and I need help because this is your child, and you know him better than I do, better than I ever will. What do I do? How, what's he, what, what do I need to know? What can I think? And in this new book that we're now working on, and so much on our mind of Seeking Family Revelation, which we'll talk to you about when we're done with it, by the way, but but the whole premise of it is, you know, God has given you this stewardship. It's, it's an almost unimaginable stewardship. He's given you the stewardship over your spiritual brother or sister who has come to you as a helpless baby. And you are now the steward that is expected to babysit that child, raise him to adulthood, and follow the will of his true parents and how he's raised. And that's, that's, that's impossible. That's beyond our capacity. There's nothing that makes you feel more humble than realizing I can't do that. I can only do it if I have direction and guidance from the true parents, from the heavenly parents. And so, you know, there's a saying that Abraham Lincoln used, and I don't know what his context was, but it works better in parenting. 
And, and the saying was, there are times when I'm driven to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. And I think that's how we feel as humble parents when we're trying to raise a child. We don't know enough. We don't have enough tools. We don't have enough insight. We have to go to the real parent. And so we're not only his partners, we're, we're, we're working for God in his job of creating eternal souls. And, you know, I just have to say, just sorry, you can still say one more thing if you want to. But. <laughs> But I do think that since I've been talking to so many moms that are struggling with things right now with their kids and so on, I just think they are valiant, dear, amazing souls who are doing God's work, his best work. And I think that sometimes the hardest kids are sent to the best parents because God knows that he can, they can take care of it. They can do it, which makes us feel kind of like floozies because we are so blessed to have our all our kids active in the church and you know having served missions and being so dedicated but i think sometimes heavenly father sends the hardest kids to the very very best parent and i think that's important for parents for moms especially to know as they struggle with their kids oh yeah that is such a hopeful thought and and the shift in thinking that we're we're with our brothers and sisters yeah. right that these aren't these aren't, we don't have that, have to have that parent-child relationship that spiritually and ultimately eternally we have the relationship with them that, that we're siblings, that we, that we have a he heavenly parents who, who love yeah. us and who are there for us. Thank yeah. you so much. This has been wonderful. And I feel so honored that you would come on and, and let me interview you and share this with my audience. And we want to tell everybody that we have a special offer for you to get Richard's new book, The Happiness Paradox. You can get it for 50% off plus free shipping. And all of that information will be on the show notes at spirituallymindedmom.com of how you can do that. And go and follow the Iyers on Instagram. I will, I will tag them and put that on the show notes as well. Thank you so much for sharing all of your, your wisdom and being so willing to do this. I am so grateful. Our pleasure, darling. Thanks so much. I know you have a million things to do, and I'm grateful you took the time to listen to today's podcast. I hope the episode helped you to know God is your partner in motherhood. For show notes, head over to spirituallymindedmom.com. For more motherhood inspiration, follow along on Instagram at spirituallymindedmom. And if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with a friend. I would love it if you would leave a review and rate it on iTunes. This helps more moms to find hope, joy, and God's hand in motherhood. Have an amazing day. And remember, you are doing God's work and you are doing it wonderfully well.